Hey, everybody, welcome to the Grow Yourself podcast. I'm your host, Kevin McNulty, and this is your personal development school of growth, where each week my guests and I will bring and break down big ideas and practices that will help you learn, grow, and succeed in life. Thanks for checking us out. Now let the growth begin. Welcome, you fellow seekers of personal, professional, and spiritual growth to another episode of the Grow Yourself podcast. Listen, I am so happy that you've taken the time to join us, to to watch on YouTube or listen on Spotify, Apple, whatever it is, but to join me on this transformative journey where, you know, we unravel what I hope are profound ideas and then try to distill them down into you know, just bite-sized wisdom, if you will, that that will, you know, fuel our personal growth as human. So today, I have the honor of sitting down with author Chris Marshall, who wrote the book Decoding Change. And before I get started, let me just say this, that, you know, I've had a few episodes on, uh, I, I guess you could say change, but really more like resilience and these sorts of things. And this will touch on some of that, but I'll tell you that we're coming from a completely different angle, and you'll hear why in, in just a second. I just want to put that on the table. So Chris wrote the book, Decoding Change, Understanding What the Heck is Going On and Why We Should Be Optimistic About Our Future. And, uh, you know, and, and so change, you know, it's a word that I can speak personally that both excites me and intimidates me in, in some ways. I think we live in this era that is of unparalleled transformation. In fact, you know, Chris has an interesting idea about about what we're up against in terms of change and the things that we're dealing with in the future to come. But in any event, you know, this this unparalleled transformation, you know, where you know where the convergence of countless trends <clears throat> has set the stage really for this I would say a monumental shift in our society uh, in the fabric of our societies, you know. And, uh, and let me tell it's you, it's easy to feel overwhelmed, uncertain about what lies ahead. You know, frankly, if you have kids or grandkids or, you know, or, or just obviously people that, that follow you, young people that follow you, uh, this is probably the thing is if I get into the, into the wrong mode of thinking, I'd be cons- concerned about, you know, my kids, what are they facing and, and my grandkids. And so, but um, we just become uncertain about you know what lies ahead and how it will affect our personal lives. So in this episode, we're going uh, to have quite an adventure alongside a futurist, uh, Chris Marshall. I told Chris I'm I'm fascinated by futurists because there's unique thinking that goes on there about you know what's ahead. But he'll guide us uh, as we explore this complex world of change. We'll dive into you know, the heart of culture, uncovering the connections between history and economics, you know, philosophy, behavioral science. Yes, and he, he does all of that. And perhaps he will even offer us a way of thinking, you know, maybe to broaden our thinking, uh, to sort of break through or break, you know, you know, break from our sort of a more narrow focus, maybe gaining a clearer and more complete understanding of the pic- big picture of the future. But this conversation is not simply about deciphering, you know, complexities of change. It's about our personal growth. This is what the podcast is about. It's about our ability to thrive amidst uncertainty. It's about unlocking what I would call the superpower, uh, you know, of curiosity. You know, being resilient in, in, in the faces of challenges and maintaining this unwavering optimism about our future, which again, as I think on my own, as I speak to people around me, 
I don't know as a society whether we're optimistic or pessimistic, and so we're going to ask Chris about that. And so my guest, Chris Marshall, is known as the uncertainty scientist. Now there's a title for you. Chris is a behavioral scientist. He's a professional futurist and the author of the book, as I said, Decoding Change, which was published in 2022. The book itself explores Again, the transformative power of embracing uncertainty in this era of radical change with a focus on helping individuals, organizations navigate the challenge, these challenges of, these, of, of our uncertain future. Chris offers practical strategies to cope with uncertainty, reduce stress, foster adaptability. He also advocates for a multidisciplinary mindset and shares insights from diverse fields such as history, economics, behavioral science, philosophy, and neuroscience. Chris's work also inspires optimism, by the way, highlighting humanity's innate ability to adapt, innovate, and flourish when faced with change, and amen to that. So join us as we delve into his wisdom. And so, if you will, please welcome my special guest, Chris Marshall. Chris, thank you so much for being with us here on Grow Yourself. Kevin, thank you. Thank you for that very kind introduction. Uh, it's, an, it's an absolute pleasure to be to be talking with you. Well, listen, I, I, uh, I, I will admit to you that when I first came across you, uh, and then, of course, as I started to really research more about you and your work in behavioral science, science but also the whole idea of what you talk about, and that is change and, and just this broad aspect of change as it relates to our future. I just thought, you know what? We all need to hear this. This will help us grow. So Chris, you know, would you mind just first telling, telling our audience just a little bit about you? You know, who is Chris Marshall? I think probably the best way to jump in there is, is with that title, The Uncertainty Scientist, because that was actually a nickname that I inherited. Um, and it's been an obsession for me. Uncertainty has been an obsession, both in terms of research and just a broad fascination of the world around us. Um, and to me, that uncertainty has taken me in two very different directions. And what's been amazing in, in the last kind of few years, I've been able to bring them back together. And those two different directions are what's driving change and disruption, because that's the other side of the same coin is uncertainty. Mm. If we have disruption, we have uncertainty. And then the behavioral science side of me, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about how kind of why I, I had that fascination in terms of our decision-making and how yes. things affect our decision-making. Um, then that side looks at, well, what happens to our decision-making under uncertainty? Um, but it's actually far bigger than that. Mm. Uncertainty doesn't just change how we think. It doesn't just change how we take risks. It changes our relationships. It changes our behavior. It changes our wellness. It changes every single aspect of life. Um, for a long time, we thought that the uncertainty just changed how we appraised things. So how we come to a conclusion, a, a processing type thing. But actually what we're discovering now through, through certainly neuroscience is it also changes what information you take in. You actually take in different information from the world around you if you're in a stress state than if you're not. Interesting. Uh, so we'll, we'll unpick all of that, but probably that, that's, that's probably the, the, the easiest um, kind of way to describe me, the, the uncertainty scientist. And I look at both of those sides, how the world's changing and then how we cope better, how we make better decisions, I guess, in a, in a very uncertain, chaotic, disruptive world. Wow. Fascinating. And, and really just this, this great sort of framework 
uh, to process, you, you know, just those two ideas alone. Could you, you know, by the way, I heard about a thousand questions I could ask in just that very short opening you provided there. But listen, can you maybe just give a little overview of your book? However you'd like to proceed on, I'm, I'm happy to go there. But tell maybe a little bit about the book, an overview. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, sure. So, so decoding change took a few years. I mean, it was, it was quite a big research project. Um, I work within the investment industry as well. I, I put to use my the, the future skills and behavioral science skills and, and work as an as a investment strategist. And what I was noticing more and more, certainly when I was doing kind of seminars or speaking at conferences, was people, they, they knew the world was changing, but they didn't know how, they, and they, they didn't understand how. And so I often talk about these two questions I always ask audiences when I'm up on stage, and it shows this level of uncertainty in the general population. And the first question is, raise your hand if you feel like the world is undergoing rapid change. Mm. And I get a consistent response. It doesn't matter the professional background. It doesn't matter the age. It doesn't really matter the demographics. Everybody puts their hand up instantly. There is no thought to this. It's like, yes, I, I, I feel like the world's changing. And then I say, keep your hand up if you can now explain to me or pinpoint where change is coming from. And everybody puts their hand down. Oh, you get one or two people who are like, oh, I think I know the answer. That's, that's really cool. Wow. But 99% of people put their hand up to question one. 98% of people put their hand down to question two. And what you're seeing there is just this understanding, this intuitive feeling that the world around us is changing, but no idea really how. And that's almost the worst case situation for our brain. Oh, interesting. Our, our brain, If let's bring this all the way back to kind of the evolution of us as, a, as an organism. Our brain it has one role, and that is to keep us alive. It's a survival mechanism. Um, it wants to pass our genes on. It wants the organism to thrive, to be in the state of what we call homeostasis, which is kind of this, this state of growth, repair, yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, well-being. Um, and to do that, it's an extraordinarily sensitive and clever system. It doesn't just respond to what's happening. It anticipates what might happen tomorrow and prepares us, or for what might happen next, I should say. So if we came out of the cave I will eventually come back to the book. <laughs> no, please. Don't. So it's a, it's yeah. a very long answer as, as to why do. this came about. But please um, do. Um, when we kind of go back to that Neolithic era, when we stepped out of the cave, if there was any sign of uncertainty, it was a very good trigger for us to be to change state, to suddenly become hyper aware, hyper vigilant. Actually, our physiology changes, and a lot of us now like some of those physiology, physiology changes because we are more energized, we're more motivated. Mm. Um, but it was really, it's an evolutionary response here that, that says, I smell something strange on the air and that signals to my body and brain that I should be more alert. I should stop daydreaming about what I might eat later or contemplate. I don't know. I guess they didn't furnish caves, but let's yeah. pretend they did. Um, and it was, it was this focusing response. So to bring this kind of full circle, the, the book was really an attempt to help people understand how the world changes, because I became very aware that my specialization was trends and megatrends. Um, and I was very aware that we weren't ever taught this. Very few people are ever taught this. And you, you have to go on very specialist degrees 
to even be subjected to this. You know, so you, we're talking here about kind of even specialist futures thinking. But where trends and megatrends allow us to really pierce through the noise and the chaos, I often liken it to the, to the ocean. And the ocean, you get these incredible currents under the surface. They're not affected by the storms. The surface can be absolutely storm-ridden waves crashing everywhere, mm. but these currents are, are consistent. And that's very much like the world around us now, is that we focus on the surface. We fo focus on the visible. That's where mass media is. It's where social media is. Everything is. But if we actually come down and we just look at the far more slow-moving trends, they're far more stable. They're far more consistent. Yes, they can change direction. Yes, they can stop but they don't tend to do that overnight. And therefore they give us this really good direction of where the world might be heading. So that was really the ambition of the book. Uh, and I, I really kind of sewed together this idea of looking at trends and understanding how they move in cycles and they bring around everything from global order or global power changes to innovation cycles. Um, and then really kind of teasing apart some of the biggest ones, some of the ones which really change humanity and the human race in, in unbelievable ways. And so when I'm talking about there, whenever we see through history, these kind of these changes, things like the change in the, in the social philosophy of culture. So a huge one, even bigger is when the natural environment moves. Um, and for me, this is, this is now the, 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 the next part is that the, the way or the number of trends that we see on the move today the magnitude of change which is coming is nothing like the industrial revolution. I liken this to as big an event for humanity as when we stopped being hunter-gatherers and we became a settled agrarian society. That's kind of the size of magnitude of change. And go back to something I said right at the start, if we kind of say disruption and change equals uncertainty or is the same thing as uncertainty, then what we're saying is we are about to enter this era of incredible radical uncertainty that in and of itself you know <clears throat> that statement alone i, I can just see and and, the, and there's there's a bit of a visceral response in myself as well where i go oh oh no what's what's about to happen i mean there's the, the fear immediately comes in i i suppose it's partly to what you just said about that you know that that's that's our you know that's our our brain going into tribal mode and saying okay you know what am i going to do but i want to key in on one more thing that you said though chris if i can re recall what you said that you, that this this polling that you do with audiences that they don't know what's causing the change and it made me think that well if that's true and you also talked about how we are um how we are responding to the 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 current the the the, the surface current, then if if we don't understand it, if we don't know it, then wouldn't it be fair to say that we're making decisions uh, can be very radical and not ever get to the source of solving anything because you know we're all distracted by the the surface current, so we're we're like we don't know what's happening or why it's happening, but I'm going to do something, <laughs> right? Yeah, you're, you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And I, th I think it's worse. I think it's worse than that. I mean, in your vision, it, it's at least got action. Okay. Um, there is, there is a vision of this or I a see. version of this where, you know, unfortunately we're, you know, I'm, I'm 
kind of joking, but it's very serious to people who okay. experience this, that, that, you know, kind of massive anxiety, massive loads of stress. And yes, that can, you know, in a, in a mild form, stress can be a mobilizer. It increases our energy. Mm-hmm. But when we start talking about, I mean, the, the issue is not stress. We, you know, and I want to make that clear. We shouldn't run away from stress. Stress is actually a, a good part of our system. Mm-hmm. The issue comes when that stress button, that stress switch is stuck on. Um, and it becomes chronic. Then we start getting into like maladaptive behaviors, addictive behaviors. We can start linking together so many of the things which we've been treating as, as isolated symptoms, which we now know are not necessarily stress caused, but stress has a big influence on them. And so I'm talking about everything from the, from the obvious, which is anxiety, but also things like high blood pressure, um, we could like put in there, you know, certain types of diabetes, potentially certain types of cancers, obesity, you know, all, all of these things. Yeah, inflammation they have, in the body, <clears throat> all of these things. Yes. Um, and so, and so, yeah, you, you do, you end up in the system where our modern world is, is infinitely complex as well. I mean, that's the other thing we've got to throw into this bag. And when you start stirring it up, so let's, let's just pretend we, we live in this snow globe um and somebody's there going like just shaking it and we're waiting to see how it falls mm. but the issue is it never does it's it's in this perpetual state of, of of motion um and in calm periods we this is the kind of the the fallacy in our thinking if you like uh we believe that things the status quo is permanent and real and tangible and safe yet we mistake it for just a calm period um, and when things start turn, turning, this is when we start to see the impermanence, that nothing is ever stable. Everything is designed to flow. Everything's des- always designed to, to rise or fall and is always in a state of either. Um, but you're, you're absolutely right. So what you were talking about before, that kind of, I label it kind of that stress response that you were actually physically feeling, you know, that's, that's a normal response. That's our evolutionary response that you've detected a threat to your organism, which is a, a changing future. You're not sure how that, that kind of might play out. Will it be good or will it be bad? And so you, you feel that physical change in you, your heart rate ticks up, your breathing starts to go a little bit more shallow. Your, your body is actually preparing for fight and flight. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is kind of where it becomes really interesting because while that response was so well adapted to living as a hunter-gatherer, or even earlier settled society, when our the uncertainty and stress triggers, the stress response was going off because of normally immediate life-threatening situations. In our modern world, what we fail to appreciate is many of the things which trigger us are neither in, imminent and they're not life-threatening. Yet we have a physical response we still respond as if we've just faced a bear and we haven't that's fair enough because i i was before i actually said that to you about my visceral response i did think to myself well well kevin you you don't even know in what context he meant that whether he meant that to be positive or negative you made the assumption or had the perception that there was a threat and of course we're just here talking but if if that if there was if there was an analogy that somebody was coming into my yard 
and I had that same visceral response. Do I think first or do I shoot them? You know, I mean, I'm just saying th there, therein lies the difference between, you know, th this, this uh, stress response, you know, and to your point that things are happening so rapidly, so multifaceted, so many different things that are we responding correctly to whatever it is? I mean, this thing can grow. This whole conversation can grow. Uh, oh, I don't know what your thoughts are there, but... I don't even have a question, really. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so, you know, what we're touching on here is is our wiring, our biology, which is an incredibly sophisticated, elegant construction. I mean, it's it's so sensitive. You are actually, we're not even sat in the same country and your, your body is detecting things yeah. through a virtual screen. It's detecting cues of threat from what I'm saying. Yes. Um, <clears throat> and I think what's really important here is we've got too caught up in this is all about our brains. Um, and it's easy at that point to think, oh, well, it's all to do with our thinking. And it's not. We've just been talking about physiology. Hmm. Um, and what's really happening here is your your nervous system is obviously connected to, you know, you've, you've, you've got vision, you've got auditory senses, you've got everything else going off. And it's trying to throw your brain some signals. Your brain is actually sat in this windowless box. It is not connected to the outside world. It relies on, on sensory input. Mm. And your, in your biology, your nervous system is throwing it these information packets, these data packets. And this is where we've got, in my view, emotions wrong. And again, kind of leading neuroscience is now pointing to this, is emotions aren't things that we want to get rid of they're extraordinarily valuable signals. That's, your, that's the language your nervous system speaks to your brain. Where we kind of get it wrong is we, we could go back to Rene Descartes, we could go back to any of these kind of contemplative thinkers of that era who were so keen on rational, logical, deductive thinking. You know, very kind of sponge anything to do with emotions out of it. And you can see why, because when we're in a really high stress response, our emotions can exaggerate things, whether that's extreme sadness, extreme rage. So emotions to some degree can get in the way. But what we need to come back to is that, is that introspective ability to actually understand what's going on in our body and, and actually sit with it. We need to lean into an emotion, not run away from it, which is our modern wow. response. Oh, man, I love that. Um, because again, if we take it that the, this is just a signal, I and mean, again, let's throw some more neuroscience in here, which is kind of just bringing so much clarity to all this emotions are meant to last 90 seconds. That includes <laughs> like anger. <laughs> Did somebody actually sit down with a formula to figure that out? <laughs> there are some people far cleverer wow. than me. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. Far, Five, 90 five, seconds. Interesting. Yeah, and and you know that's that's the time scale of both the 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 kind of that upping of, of these chemicals and the reduction back down. Mm. After that period of time, what we have to actually acknowledge is is most of us, if we're in a state of rage or anger, it lasts far more than ninety seconds. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can personally attest to that. I can hold a grudge for a lot longer than yeah. ninety seconds. I can make it last days. Um, <clears throat> but actually, in what I've just said, I've given away the clue. I've managed to make it last lot, much longer. I see. So now, now we're getting into it, like where we're focusing our attention. 
And this is where we can go round and round it. It's actually a, a really kind of a mechanism, if you like, where we're trying to make or take control of an uncertain situation. So rumination and suppression is both a control tactic. We're trying to, when you're ruminating about something, going over and over and over again, you're actually trying to go, okay, well, I can, if I think hard enough about this, I'll find the solution. Interesting. And if you suppress it, you're trying to go, I don't want to think about it. Mm. I want to think about something else. Instead, <clears throat> with that idea that emotions are important, they're part of our biology and they shouldn't last that long. If you can catch it at that first moment and just sit with it, you can actually unpack the information that your body is trying to tell you. It's not something to get caught up in. It's something to actually listen to because when you do, you can suddenly appraise going, okay, well, what has just frightened me? What has just enraged me? What has made me sad? If we, if we don't actually question the emotion, we actually lose so much valuable texture to life um, that these are things we should lean into, not in a case of self-blame, but actually self-compassion. I hope, I hope that makes some sense. <laughs> no, it, it makes a lot of sense. And I, and I just, I, I just must say that, you know, particularly being in, in the field that I'm in, you know, in, in coaching and soft skills and these sorts of things. Yeah. I've heard this uh, over the years, many, many times, you know, but you know, that, you know, the, take the emotions out of it. And I've, I've had a fair amount of pushing back, you know, on that. I've, I've pushed back a fair amount saying, you know, I mean, there is such thing as you so eloquently said as an overreaction, whereas you're, you're, you, you don't involve any thinking whatsoever. You just have this visceral response and in, in to something so minor and, you know, and you lash out in an appropriate way. Okay. I get that part of it. Or that we're sitting in a meeting talking about something and somebody starts crying and uncontrollably. I mean, that's, that's, there, there's more to it than that or, or what, however you want to put that. But the idea that uh, that I shouldn't get angry, or that I shouldn't feel sad, or that I shouldn't feel fear, whatever whatever it is, uh, is preposterous in my way of thinking. Because you're exactly right. To me, I mean, so then, okay, if that's the case, then when I see that beautiful butterfly, I shouldn't feel anything about it. I guess, or or what? I don't know. Or <clears throat> I, I mean, I, 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 I think... guess I'm stretching it, but yeah. No, I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure you are. You know, I think in modern society, we've mm -hmm. kind of latched onto this idea that it's really good to feel the positive emotions, but we should never feel the negative ones. Um, and that leads to some it's it's it sounds lovely. Yeah. Um, you know, brilliant. Um, sure. Everybody would agree. Oh, if I can get rid of the negative ones and just have the, the positive yeah. ones, that sounds a wonderful utopian life to me. Yeah. But it, again, misses some points here. You know, a fear reaction uh, is a really important one. If we didn't have, let's, let's bring this to physical. If we didn't have a pain reaction, you'd still be there sat contemplating, why is my hand burning with, with it still on the stove? Yeah. Um, you know, okay, that's a reflex, yeah. but yeah. it's still a signal that is negative that we need to listen to. And fear can be the same. Definitely. Sadness can be the same. You know, kind of if you lose somebody and you feel sadness and grief, Actually, what your body is trying to tell you is that person meant something to you. Yes. 
Thank you. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's not just simply, oh, why am I so sad? Yeah. And I think in our modern society, <clears throat> we're, we're, we're too quick to try and banish or reframe or suppress or just get rid of the negative emotion. And we miss the beauty contained in it. We miss the message that it's trying to bring us. Listen, Chris, I, I recall several years ago, in fact, it was back in, oh, I think it was 2014, that uh, in, now if you're not a, a dog lover, animal lover, uh, people listening may not get this, but I had a golden retriever, man. He was just, oh, just the most beautiful pet. You know, I had such a connection with him, unlike any other dog I had, quite frankly. And so in any event, he, um, <clears throat> we, we had to put him to sleep uh, because of some cancer that he had, you know, and it, it just became imminent where he was in, just in a lot of pain. And, and so I did that. And, um, and, and I uh, remember coming home after doing so and pulled into our driveway. And I remember have this thought and, you know, God, I, I'm not trying to, well, you, you know, I had this thought that I felt like it came from God. Okay. And, and the thought was this, that I couldn't understand the level of pain I was experiencing over a dog you know, in, in, in such a way. And it just, it, it felt a little awkward, but I was in such deep pain. I, I was crying, just really, really crying. And here was the thought that gave me this weirdest, most odd feeling. And by the way, philosophy moving forward. And it was this, it was this, you know, Kevin, your pain is a reflection of the love. Without the love, there's no pain. The deeper the love, the more the pain. So the, the, the thought that truly came to me in this moment of just crying was embrace the pain because it's a reflection of love. I walked, I got out of my car with this weirdest feeling, Chris, that I started loving the pain. I don't know how you say that, except that I realized that these two things went hand in hand. And so while I still felt the pain, there was a certain joy that I had. And even as the pain, the grief, if you will, started to diminish over the, over the days to come, I almost uh, didn't want it to go. Isn't that strange? Yeah, absolutely. No, I can. I mean, I can completely. In, in an interesting way, yeah. Yeah, um, and and that's it. And you know, if, if you decided to take a very different approach to that and mm -hmm. suppress it, yeah. you know, let's let's take actually let's take our modern world of of seeking the external to change our internal. Mm. Um, you know, that there, there'll be plenty of people that go, okay, I know how to change my state very quickly. I can reach for this drug, this drink, this whatever, mm. or mm. whatever external thing it is that they recognize as a joy producing thing. But you would have missed out on something. You would have missed out on that linking of a memory with mm. something else. You would have just, skimmed past it not actually kind of learned much from it yes but it, it sounds to me like it was a huge learning experience not huge. only just for for that split second but also potentially mm. when you sit with those emotions you know i can see now why you push push back against people who go mm -hmm. i'll get rid of them all um because you yourself have had that experience mm -hmm. where they can be valuable i mean i'll i'll quickly share a story of, of me overlooking emotions um, or at least kind of not being introspective enough, not listening to my body enough. 
So this was kind of maybe 2016 or 17. And I grew up in a family. I mean, even on our family crest, it's got, it's got the Latin alta petite, which means always aim high. Oh my. Um, so I was brought I like up that. in this family, which really did live by that motto. Okay. Um, always push yourself, always strive, do okay. it. And my mum's my mum's kind of saying, I can hear her say this to me now, even though she passed away years ago, was um, she said to me, oh, you know, kind of fatigue is just in the mind. <laughs> I used to like, I used to run with this. Um, <clears throat> and so wow. that would just mean you dig deeper. Yeah. And I can wow. remember 2016, I had, I had, couple of different businesses i was still working in the investment world i was doing research academic research into behavioral science i had all of these things going on and i was shattered i was exhausted i can just remember like kind of fatigue is just in the mind push push harder and i chose to override my body's message to me which is chris stop <laughs> or scale back <laughs> whatever else and i decided no no it's just in the mind i'll push on I hospitalized myself with burnout. And I, I can tell you, I mean, it, anyone who's ever gone through burnout, it's not just oh, I'm tired. It's um, it's the body's way of doing what I didn't. Um, and yeah. this is where I think a lot of my work now, um, I'll, I'll maybe go into kind of a, a, a tool that your listeners can, can use. Um, but so I developed a tool. This is uh, my most recent work uh, called Pause, Pause, Move. Um, and it's a framework for making high stakes decisions in a chaotic world. Um, and the reason there's two pauses, it's not just some marketing spin. It's not just for effect. Um, is there's an order that we need to think. And the first pause is all about going inside and going, not necessarily asking what do I need here or what am I thinking? Because if you're in an emotional or stress state, you're actually disconnected to your rational brain anyway. You know, like it's been hijacked by the amygdala. Mm -hmm. There's cortisol now flying through your brain and you're not, you're not thinking straight. And so pause one is learning what I call self-mastery. And self-mastery is, is going inside, understanding, okay, I actually feel like my stress level is, is, is up. My thinking probably isn't that clear. Before I do anything, I need to bring that down. That's pause one. Nice. And once you've done that, then all of a sudden you open up the, the greatest parts of your brain, the greatest highways and pathways. You are, a balanced brain just works like a beautifully oiled car. Oh, I mean, it, it, just, it just flows. It can process more information. It can find abstract thinking. Um, and then pause two, once you're in that state, you can then, it doesn't mean then suddenly you you make great decisions. Pause two is then saying, you now need to scan the external world. You're probably approaching it from a single perspective because that's what mm -hmm. us humans like to do. We like to think yes. we're very clever that we've got all the information. Pause two is about going, find at least one other perspective. And once you've done that, find more if you can, but just find one more, look at the problem from that side. And then if you're in a calm state, and you've considered other perspectives, other data which you've been casting out, then you're ready to move. Um, and it's it's this paradox of pausing. It actually goes back to something you said right in the in the introduction, which I love because I I use the same phrase that curiosity is your superpower. And essentially, what those two pauses are is it's curious of what's inside mm. and curious of what's outside. 
Um, and unless you get it in that order, you can't do it the other way around. You can't go and find new perspectives unless you've controlled you first. Because guess what happens when we're stressed is we become closed-minded. We, we become rigid. We become disengaged. Wow. Yeah, because, um, our, we're, because we're focused on survival, right? I mean, if you want to just take it to that point, you're, yeah, of taking action. I, I don't know. Or, or, or no action at all, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a stress response. Mm, um, <clears throat> it's a survival response. It doesn't pay to be. Mm. Um, so, okay, another question that I often throw at people is, where do you have your best thinking? Um, as you can tell, I'm quite mean to my audiences. Uh, <laughs> I just ask them lots of questions. Um, Great. But, and I say, you know, put your hand up when I say the location where you have your best thinking. And I always start with the office because it's an hilarious one because nobody puts their hand up. Um, it's the place we go to think and do our best thinking and nobody thinks the best there. Um, <clears throat> and then when I start going, okay, well, how about the shower? It's like yes, or like yoga or on the beach, or running or walking, what or gardening, whatever that thing is. Um, and it's this, mm. it's firstly this bonding experience for an audience, because we don't just taking information from inside ourselves and the external environment. We also take in information from others around us. We're social creatures. But what's really fascinating about, about this kind of asking this question and getting this feedback is you're able to then tell people because they're all in this kind of state of awe or kind of like of each other i mean like everybody's like oh it's not just me that doesn't think very well in the office oh it's not just me that thinks well while i'm in, on holiday and you go it's nothing to do with the location it's got everything to do with the state you're in interesting um and we can use these places i mean i know of people who use showers <laughs> to try and think better and you're like no, like fine to learn it and to, to kind of take a little kind of snapshot and go, okay, well, this is how I feel in the shower, but you don't need the shower. Hmm. You've got it. You've got it with you wherever you are. And in a chaotic, uncertain environment, that's an incredible skill to be able to have. That's the self-mastery. That's being able to, to go, okay, I know I'm stressed. I'm going to bring myself back down. But what's fascinating here is when we start looking at what happens to the calm or what I'd call joyous brain. And I used the term joy in a scientific sense. Joy is a state. It's a calm, balanced state. Okay. And when we have those abstract thoughts, this is where we have breakthroughs. Okay, those insights, those ahas, we think that they only come to us every now and again if we're like really super lucky or um, once in a blue moon, you know, all these different phrases. But they actually are just when we're in a certain state that we're able to make these connections to different memories and different parts of our brain um, when, it's, when it's just working easily. Now, we can go beyond thinking, and I just want to kind of bring this all the way around because I think this is really important for your audience, is it's not just a change in our well-being and our thinking. It's not just about breakthroughs or insights. Okay. When we're in that state of calm and joy, we are empathetic. In fact, we're intimate. Mm, we yes. can we can see other people's views and not feel personally attacked. Very interesting. Um, we, you know, so if you're with your partner or your spouse, I talk about stress in normally like a kind of a scale, and we can put it on a scale of one to five or one to ten. And most people live their life in the middle of that scale, by the way. Okay, 
they they wouldn't necessarily describe themselves as stressed. They'd say, I'm motivated, I'm dynamic, <laughs> I've got stuff to do, I've got goals. Um, <clears throat> that's very much high energy, you know, kind of motivational uh, states. They're not bad to be in, but when we get stuck there, you find that those people also tend to have problems in their relationships when they get stuck at that stress state because they can't come down to a place where they can be intimate with, with, with their significant other. Uh, you actually see also a massive change in their, their view of the world. Um, when you're in a stress state, if chronically stressed, even if it's not stressed out, so we're just talking about this kind of this ongoing background noise, this low lying, I've got deadlines, I've got these things to do, everything's on top of me, I'm, just, I'm feeling overwhelmed or kind of yeah. overloaded. Then what we start finding is your view of the future is also more pessimistic. And this again is an evolutionary response in that it paid going all the way back then to be pessimistic about the, out, the outcome of the future if things were uncertain, because better to be pessimistic than optimistic than going, oh, I think I smell a lion. Who cares? I yeah. won't eat me today. <clears throat> that didn't do very well. And that person who did that, yeah. you know, and unfortunately for that person, um, we're, we're not an ancestor of them put it that way. Um, (laughs) they were eaten. Um, but when we're in that very calm state, we can actually be optimistic. Mm. It's not an irrational or naive optimism. It's a, it's a belief in the ability to overcome. So you can still see the hurdle. And I think this is kind of the, the other part of, of decoding change, you know, hence that that kind of subtitle is when you kind of look at human history, when you look at humans, and you spend time really analyzing them. So I, you know, like you, I, I coach CEOs and entrepreneurs and investment managers. And you start to see not only in them, but in human history, this, this incredible ability that the human species has. And that is we are the most adaptive, creative, innovative mm-hmm. creatures that have ever walked this planet, swam this planet. But those attributes disappear when we're stressed. And I think that's the kind of the real big mission is that we we do, as a human species, we've got some big hurdles up ahead. You know, bring this back to the future's work and the trends and mega trends. The world is changing and we've got some, we've got some really big things to get through. But we we won't um, we won't be able to meet those challenges unless we learn to master ourselves. That's the irony of this. If we can master ourselves, those those obstacles, in my view, they don't pose a significant issue. Um, we yeah, overcome them. Yeah, it's very, very interesting that you're saying that. It's just fascinating what you just talked about. And and so your segue there, well, intended or not, I'm going to use it as a segue in that, <clears throat> well, I mean, we could draw it down into, let's say, even just a, a small family in a house that if only one of the, let's say, the five people have sort of mastered themselves, um, the chaos still ensues. And so how then do you, how do you get, you know, everybody to be in that flow state relatively? And now, now let's extend that to our neighborhood and then our city and then our society. So on the one hand, and I'm not diminishing whatsoever what you just said, it's so beautifully said, that we have to learn that, but how do you train a whole society to to go to to go into this 
Well, you know, maybe maybe the idea is uh, let's just relax, everybody. You know, I mean, let's let's relax and sort this out. So, so let that ruminate for just a second, if if you will. But I do, I do want to ask about what you you emphasize in your book this concept of of a paradigm shift and the convergent of multiple trends. Can you talk a little bit about that? I was fascinated to read about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So, <clears throat> I mean, I guess this is kind of why I say there's so much importance in self-mastery. Yeah. Because coming back to this, you, by the way, absolutely. yeah, because coming back to this idea of this era of uncertainty. <laughs> so let's dig into why I see that. Um, because it's, I think it's that, that, that really lays the foundation for what we've just been talking about. So, as I said, my work specializes in trends and megatrends, the, the biggest drivers, these, these huge drivers of change around the world. And we could be talking about the natural environment. We could be talking about social philosophy. We could be talking about demographics, you know, and any of them. Uh, AI, disruptive, right? I mean, AI, disruptive technologies. Yeah, yep, yeah, yeah, completely. Okay. Um, <clears throat> now, for the last few hundred years, we've really been dealing with um, kind of disruptive changes and trends which have belonged to the, the top of the scale. And I'll explain what the scale is now. Um, so the way I see the world, it's through layers. Um, and these layers update at different speeds. Now, the relationship you need to know about these layers is the faster it updates, the less impactful it is. The slower it updates, the far bigger its impact is on humanity. Say that one more time. Okay. So the, the layers update at different speeds. The faster layers update far more frequently, but cause less chaos. Okay. The slower layers update really slowly, but when they change, they uh, have their own magnitude of change. Wow. <clears throat> so let's just drill into that for a second and kind of put some labels on these layers. I, I use six layers um, in, in this, and it, I can't completely have ownership of this. It's, um, it's, it's not completely my theory. Um, but we, the top layer is, is, is products. We're used to products changing all the time. You know, uh, if you if you work in fast-moving consumer goods, or you just shop, or you just live on planet Earth, you'll know that pro the products update annually, seasonally, monthly, weekly. Um, but below below that, we have businesses. So that's layer two is businesses. Businesses update slower than products. That's intuitive because after all, it's the businesses making products, the businesses that understand consumers' needs best, i.e., make the best products are the ones which rise and the businesses which don't understand consumers' needs and make products that don't people want fall. And, you know, when we're looking at the world's biggest businesses, we even see this. So the fall of Kodak. Kodak was the world's dominant player in mm -hmm. photographic industry. I mean, it had 90% of the world share. And then it was taken out by the digital camera. The product changed and they didn't follow, so the business failed. Where we kind of bring in AI and things like that that you mentioned is in the next layer down. They belong to the infrastructure layer. This is what businesses are built off. This is what society is built off. It's the best way of thinking. So the, the recent era that we've been through, I call it the age of measurement, is all built around the semiconductor. That's, mm -hmm. that's the innovation. If we go back, if we go all the way back to the Industrial Revolution, that was built, we would have been talking about the steam engine and the water frame and the spinning jenny. Mm. 50 years later or so, 
the infrastructure changed again. And we're now talking about railways and steam engines in in locomotives. Um, And every 50 to 60 years, you, you see this paradigm shift in that layer. But there are three more layers that are far more impactful. We're used to, what I'm trying to say is, we're used to in the last 250 years, just the, the top three directing change. Sure, they filter down and they impact these lower ones, but the change comes from the top down. Hmm. What we're seeing today, and this will become apparent when I label them, is we're seeing change now originate both from the bottom up and from the top down and from the middle out. And this oh. is why it's so chaotic. So the bottom three layers are regulation, so government policy and all these things, uh, cultural philosophy. We see, we see a shifting in cultural philosophy. The normal route is cultural philosophy is fairly stable because it's older generations telling younger generations how to think. And now we see a shift that we see older generations actually going, oh, okay, actually the younger generations have something here. Very interesting. Um, and then when we get to the biggest layer of all, which <clears throat> is the natural environment, I mean, this moves on a, you know, if we're talking about innovation, and infrastructure moving every 50 years when we get to the natural environment we're now talking tens of thousands of years if not hundreds of thousands of years of change Mm. um but when that moves oh boy it moves um and so this is this is the situation we're in now this is why i say this isn't you know ai machine learning and robotics and nanotechnology and all these other fancy things we've got going on they are disruptive yes Completely. They will change the way we work, we think, we live. <clears throat> but what's different this time around is this isn't just another iteration of, a, of an industrial revolution. Um, this isn't just the fourth industrial revolution, as I see sometimes commented. This is a, a paradigm shift. This is radical social change on a level which I believe is as big as when we stopped being hunter-gatherers and we became a settled agrarian society. We're talking of change 10,000 years ago. Um, I mean, this, this, even if I'm half wrong, it's still massive. Um, yeah. And, and, and the, point, the point is that we have to then bring it back to uncertainty. It's, it's all well and good um, kind of understanding or trying to understand how the world changes. I mean, I'm now speaking as a futurist and saying you cannot predict the future. There's zero way you can. It's such a complex, intertwined, integrated system um, I often have this saying that it's it's better to be vaguely right than precisely wrong. Um, and that's really my take of kind of a, a, a futures work. We're looking at these scenarios. We're looking at where things might be headed rather than this will definitely happen on this date. So that hopefully kind of gives you a backdrop as to, to why I talk about change and uncertainty and why we need why we need to get this kind of self-mastery. So... <clears throat> I, I don't know the right question, Chris, do, you know, what do we do about that? What, you know, where do we go from here? If, if we harken back to the earlier part of our conversation that we don't, um, it, we, we shouldn't maybe, I guess, make decisions based on a future that we don't understand. But on the other hand, even things like AI, and, and you know, you brought up a very good point there about, uh, I, I think you uh, indirectly s- said this, I believe, that it feels like AI just like launched in the last year, but it's it's been in the fold for 
decades probably you know i mean people working on this stuff it's just that I, i'm not sure why it suddenly unleashed itself there was obviously something big that happened but listen yeah it did they didn't start figuring this out just last year and and decide let's roll it out so 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 you're, you're right about this idea that it's been moving along perhaps slowly but the repercussions be they positive or negative in my way of thinking are going to be massive i mean every day i you know i hang out on the internet and i'm talking to people like you and it's just very apparent that everybody just went oh my i can use ai for this and for this and that and now it's just growing fast how do we you know uh, how do we control that i don't know if, if that's even a, a decent question but i guess i want to go back to to my initial question is you know what do we do about it i mean that, that, yeah that's a very good question you know, I, <laughs> i'm I mean, not sure i have i'm not sure i have the answer of, of, of what we do with it yeah. i think i think what is important though is so there's this phrase in, in decoding change, which haunts me. Um, and I can remember writing it and I still, whenever I kind of open the book or give a talk, um, it, it always kind of go, I've got to mention this. And there's the, it's this paradoxical kind of dichotomy, if you like, that all of these things that we do, we bring about a better future for future generations. You know, that's what they're, they're solving problems. You know, Thomas so well put it so well that he goes, today's solutions are solving yesterday's problems. Uh, yeah. Maybe he actually put it even the wrong way, right? the other way around. Yeah. Today's solutions are tomorrow's problems. Yeah. Um, and, but that's what we do. That's what curiosity does. You know, that's what humans do. We, we look at things and we're not just kind of standing there as, as passive viewers. We go, I've got an idea about that. Mm. This could improve this. And I think one of the real issues that we stand at today is that because everybody's so stressed and less open-minded, less adaptable, they're fearing any change. They just want the status quo. They want everything to stay the same. Fair enough. Yeah. It can't stay the same. The world doesn't ever stay the same. You know, that's the, the kind of the illusion. Um, and if we try and pause innovation, if we try and pause growth and progress, we don't end up with utopia. We end up with stagnation. Wow. Um, and so we, we, we almost can't ever put the genie back in the bottle. Yeah. You know, that's the situation we're in. And therefore, if you can't stop change or change shouldn't be stopped either way around, then this comes back to, well, what do you do to cope? And unfortunately, while we don't look like looking inside, I mean, I always quote this experiment. There was an experiment done like 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. And it was, it was looking to see how reluctant people were just to sit with themselves, you know, just sit with their own thoughts. Doesn't sound a pretty, doesn't sound a challenging experiment. Mm. They put people in a room with no distractions for 15 minutes. And one group, they decided, okay, well, let's, I think they probably just decided they wanted a bit of fun in the experiment, but they decided they'd give them one distraction. And that was, they could administer electric shocks to themselves if they wanted to. And it was something like 60% of that group decided that that was better than sitting alone with their thoughts. Um, any distraction, it doesn't matter. Just, just distract me. I get that though. I mean, I get it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, so much of our modern world is lived on the outside. We've put so much emphasis on the external. 
you know, it's that's the rise of individualism. It's 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 kind of written about in Hollywood stories of individuals who are superheroes. Uh, you know, the rise of the individual. Mm. Now, why I'm so keen about this kind of self mastery and understanding our stress response, not eliminating stress. I think stress is good for us. Mm-hmm. There will always be moments that f- scare us, and rightly so. Um, they're good signals, but we can't, we've got to stop getting stuck in these stress responses. Now, yes, the, we've got to come back to this idea that we are social creatures. One of the most inspiring things I found in all my research was when we start to share information, when we start to share knowledge, when we start to bring in other perspectives, those are the biggest leaps forward in, in human history. Um, Come back to that paragraph I was talking about that haunted me in Decoding Change, and it's this dichotomous relationship between, in the short term, it's fractious, it's chaos. Mm. It seems like we're going the wrong direction, but that's required. We're ripping down the status quo that doesn't work to build a better future. Yeah. And so the person living through it, unfortunately, has to deal with that or cut off that better, pros- that better prospect for future yeah. generations. Um, we actually have an awful lot of responsibility here not to just be selfish and just go, no, I want my time and I want everything to stay exactly the same and I don't care what comes in the future. Or we can go, no, do you know what? I'm going to do my bit to help humanity move forward. Wow. I, this... That was a bit heavy. No, 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 no. It's good. And certainly it's thought provoking and, and I think to myself, Chris, that, you know, to that point that it does appear, it seems to me that even some societies, oh, I don't even know if I want to say it, but have to crumble before they can be disrupted enough to change, you know. I don't know. I, mean, I, I might yeah, be butchered I mean, for that. You know, I mean, oh, and, and, I, I mean, unfortunately, you know, you, you know that thought. <sighs> while while you, as you say, you may you may get heckled for that one, but yeah. um, it, certainly history is on your side. Of you know, it's kind of when you go through a collapse of a. I mean, let's talk about empires. You know, empires yes. they rise and then they fall. And we we forget that we we kind of believe quite arrogantly that we're at this pinnacle of, of human existence and what is here yeah. today will remain now forever that yeah. yes, those past empires and civilizations, you know, they didn't think as well as us. They didn't have the technology of us. Yeah. And it's a very arrogant view in my, in my I opinion. Agree. I do. Agree. Um, and you're absolutely right. Unfortunately, so often things go to the point where there is no comeback. Um, right. And it's, it's then this kind of remnant that come out and inspire the next iteration. Yeah. I do think we do slightly live at a different point in history. And that is, you know, coming back to this idea of sharing information, sharing views and sharing perspectives, you and me are sat thousands of miles apart. Your listeners will come from all corners of the world. Yet this is the very first time in human history. You know, if we take it as kind of this civilization, this era in the biggest sense of it, that we're able to share information like that, yeah, that easily amazing. for free. Amazing. You know, that that there are no barriers apart from just an internet connection yeah. and a phone or a speaker or whatever you need. 
Um, and so we, we do live in a different society. And I, I honestly do hope, um, you know, it's not just me saying this, <laughs> uh, you know, there are lots of us yourself with your coaching. Um, I think, I think as long as you can get some momentum and coming back to something you said before about a family. And if there's only one person who's like in this state of joy, I'm going to argue and push back against that slightly. Please. I think it only takes that one person. You'll perhaps know this from kind of your own, your own situations where you're in this state of stress and you suddenly end up in, in somebody's company that you trust implicitly and they're calm. And they have that calming effect on you. We co-regulate. Uh, I think this is actually one of the big challenges for organizations. And I think they can be part of the solution. So coming back to that kind of almost joke about we don't have our best thinking in offices, um, that actually they are places we spend so many hours a day when we're in the office, or at least in the company of colleagues. And so we, we do, we actually impact each other and the, the state that we're in. It's not... It's not just us. We're not an island. You know, this idea of just being this individual rock is not Mm-mm. is not the case. Again, there's there's ancient evolutionary history behind this because again, come back to that idea of living in a tribe and you smelling a lion. I don't want to wait for you to tell me something. I want my body to pick up on your body's changed, mm-hmm. and so I get to the same state as you. Yes, because you've seen it. I haven't. All I've done is I've picked up on you. Yes. And so, so actually we, we can affect change because our system is set up to be so socially powerful that it doesn't require everybody to instantly get on board and go kind of, oh yeah, I, I might be stressed in the future, therefore I'm going to learn, those to, learn these tools. It just needs a portion of people to go, okay, there's some uncertainty coming up and whether it's for selfish reasons or not, I don't care if somebody wants to do it just to build a bigger business in the future. I'm yeah. completely fine with that because they're going to help everybody by doing it. Yes. And the, and it's happening all over the place. I mean, uh, it, we can easily get fooled by, you know, paying attention to the internet. I'll speak for myself, you know, get into the wrong mindset about something because, I mean, listen, I can get on the internet for, you know, 10, 10 minutes, you know, and, and go through Twitter or whatever and just think, oh, you know, the, the world's about to cave. I mean, it's about to fall in. It's easy to get into that trap. And then I walk outside and I and I see my neighbor and we have this beautiful conversation. I was like, you know what? Actually, things are great right now. I don't have that many worries. I mean, so so you're you're right. It, it, I think you mentioned earlier about you know, about you know a lot of this depends on our. Uh, I think you said state of mind or or something to this effect. But let me ask this real quick. So I want to pose this to you, Chris this this idea i don't know where i'm going with it but i think it's relative to, to let's see where we end up about. yes so the the fourth level of t- tell me the level what the what the uh, what you call the levels so uh, that the layers of change so the we layers product, of change yeah so so product business infrastructure then we get into regulation cultural philosophy or society we could call it yeah. uh, and then natural environment and ai falls where into the infrastructure. Infrastructure. Yeah. So yeah. then below that is the um, regulation, regulation, correct? Yeah. So w- what I'm thinking here is because, uh, you know, I just know I'm concerned. A lot of people are concerned that they're, they're both optimistic and, 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 and a fear of AI for good reason. Okay. However, it seems to me that in dealing with AI itself as an infrastructure, 
where we as a people, maybe individually or collectively through our government, what we should be doing is advocating the good in it, advocating that it be used well. So in other words, to your point, we're not going to stop the progress. But what we can push for is, you know, even in, in my small world, whatever politician I, I know, I should be relatively in his face to say, listen, you know, this is this thing is moving fast and it can go in a lot of di different directions. Please, as a part of our government, be one of the voices that pushes for the ethics and the good of AI, which is what we want and to keep it out of the hands of the bad people, right? I mean, am I speaking correctly about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, regulation does have this, this really important role. And I'm not um, this big regulation guy, but <laughs> no, I, and I actually come from the the other stance. You know, I'm I'm normally fairly light touch, and I I still am with this. I mean, essentially, what you want regulation to do is to protect me from you and you from me. You know, that's yeah, it's as simple as as that's simple as it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, that if I do something bad, I get punished for it. You know, that, that's really, you know, I think everybody would agree. That's that's Absolutely. kind of the outcome we want. Yeah. Where regulation can can start changing things is when they overstep that side and they decide we know what's best for you. I mean, the issue with the mm -hmm. the issue with that is again, let's bring this back to kind of factual stuff rather than just opinion. Um, when you look at any kind of centrally planned economy, so a centrally planned economy is where the government makes all the decisions. There's no free market. You know, there's no businesses trying to make the best decisions and no consumers actually choosing what they want to buy. There's this brilliant story, which um, another economist kind of talks about. And that's, that's the, the centrally planned economy of, um, of, of Russia, well, USSR. And the story is that they, they had woolen coats produced for the people. I mean, Russia in the winter is beyond freezing. Yeah. Um, and they had these superb wool coats made. And they were, they were absolutely fantastic quality, really think, well, and people could then go and queue up. Now there was an issue. And the issue was that they'd forgotten to add buttons to them. So these coats were on the shelves, they were on the hangers, so they had no buttons. And it's a little bit of a joke story, but it also highlights a really important part. In a non-centrally planned economy, there'd be more than one coat maker. Coats are essential product. They're a much needed product. Not only would you then have a variety of styles because there are different people competing for the consumer's needs, but the coat manufacturer that forgot a basic need like a button to do it up, they wouldn't be in business anymore. Right. They'd have gone. Wow. Somebody who makes better decisions wow. is in business. And, and that's the analogy of too much regulation right. is that you place power into a concentrated group of people. And even if you like that one person that group of people, guess what happens yes. when they leave office, the next people inherit it yes. and they've still got that power. <laughs> um, yes. What, what kind of can defend you today can be used against you tomorrow. This is the other way of kind of viewing it. But when you start concentrating power, we actually go against that principle I talked about of collective intelligence, of sharing information. What you're doing is the opposite. You're shrinking it. You're saying, Less people should be involved, less perspectives, less views, less experience. We just want it concentrated in these one or two people at the top. And that's wow. extraordinarily dangerous. I mean, that, that was so well said. 
I mean, especially in these days where many of us are becoming more hyper-aware of our government than we'd like to, but we feel like we need to be. Because of what you just said, I think that's incredibly well said. And uh, I hope people heed what you're saying about that idea. So I have, you know, maybe two more questions. Well, one more question, and then I want to ask about where people can find you and read your book and these sorts of things. But before that, Chris, I want to just open it up. Is there anything else that you would like to mention or that you think is really important or compelling that the audience may want to just hear about, you know, just kind of want to open the, turn the page and leave it blank and say, what else would you like to say? Um, I'm going to, I'm going to speak of why we should be optimistic about this. Ah, that was my next um, question. <laughs> <laughs> um, because, you know, we've talked a lot about yes. kind of how the world's changing, how everything's uncertain, how it's impermanent, how the future is going to be more disruptive. Um, and I'm the optimist guy. I, I, I honestly, I believe in human nature. I think, I think that's the kind of the key is I believe in human nature, but I want to talk about something which is like everybody possesses and everybody has and it's it's a super inspiring and optimistic story and that is that while i'm saying that we can easily get stuck in a stress state actually what you were saying just before about people have these positive and negative views of the future mm -hmm. that's mid-stress that we that we're kind of we're undecided we don't know if we're optimistic or pessimistic mm. and while our bodies can get stuck there the beauty of our bodies is they are dynamic that homeostasis is not this kind of, oh, we'll try and keep it the same. Talking about the constant change, we being nature are exactly the same. We are not static. We're a dynamic organism. And what that means in terms of optimism is that your brain can wire one way, which is detrimental. But guess what? It's got this amazing capacity, which we call neuroplasticity, mm -hmm. to rewire your, I mean, it's one of it. Literally, is one of the things that we don't understand how it happens. But your mind, your mind influences your brain, and your brain then influences your mind, and it's this continuous loop. And so, what you start doing not only affects how you behave and think, but it changes your wiring. And this is the the important thing. Instead of just wanting to get rid of stress and trying to be calm and everything else, that's great. But when you build it into your life, mm. you change your physiology. And if you change your physiology, that you are naturally, your base level, your set point is one of calm and joy, not this kind of this mid-level stress. Doesn't mean that you can't mobilize. Absolutely you can, and you will more often actually. But if you rewire yourself to that point, then even when chaos erupts, and it will, Everybody is going to experience fear and grief and sadness and, and all these other emotions, which are the tapestry of life. But that neuroplasticity, what you're able to do is to, to make that your default, that you can find your way back home. Mm. That's, that's the key. Um, and we all have this ability. The, the brain is the only organism which gets better with age because it, it can be rewired. Wow, that's, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I've somewhat heard all of that, you know, uh, but you've put it in such a, a not just a, a really a smart way, but, but truly an optimistic way. 
you know, the next question becomes, and I'm going to put this question on pause because I've just decided, Chris, I got to have you back and let's tackle that. How do you do that? How do you rewire okay. your brain, get into the to do's? I think it would be such a brilliant conversation. Would you, would let's, you come back and Absolutely. talk about that? Oh, man. Yeah, because, fantastic. It, because that's, that's not a, a five minute answer. <laughs> no, I, I, and, 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 and I'll have a million questions for you. You know, I'll tell you that the, the thing that I'll, I will uh, uh, conclude with is that one of my mentors, a guy named Jim Rohn, don't know if you've ever heard his name. You know, he, he, you know, he was, he was in, in the era of, um, of um, Zig Ziglar and, and some of the others. He was a bit less known to a lot of people, but in my way of thinking, one of the more brilliant modern day philosophers and practical philosophers. And he would always begin many of his talks with the question, you know, how tall will a tree grow? And he loved to speak to college students because he just loved to mentor them. And, and, and he would literally ask the audience, you know, how tall will a tree grow? And everyone would start to contribute their ideas. And you would hear all of what you think, you know, well, it depends on, you know, the type of tree. It depends on where it grows. It depends on how much water it gets. I mean, this, the list goes on. And, and, and he would acknowledge that these are, of course, true answers. He said, but the one real answer is a tree will grow as tall as it can depending on all those things that you said. And then he would go on to talk about human potential. How tall can we grow? And he said, we, and you, you just said it really in, in so many words that we are the only species that we know of, human beings who have the capacity to choose how we think, how we grow, what our career will be, whether we go left or right, whereas all the other living beings really you know operate off of instinct and and biology and and don't have this consciousness i mean not that we understand i mean think there might be different levels of it you know but but you i think you get my point and that's what i hear you saying in a very optimistic way that this neuroplasticity allows us to choose a different path it allows us to be calm or not it allows us to act like a, a, a like a, a, a an animal, you know, if, if we ignore it, I guess if we choose not to choose and just let instincts take over. I love hearing from people all the time, and I'm saying this sarcastically, say, well, hey, I'm a jerk and that's just the way I am, I am. you know, you don't like it, so uh, I don't know what to say. I'm like, no, you, you don't have to be a jerk. You don't, actually. <laughs> you can be a nice person, you know. So I just appreciate what you're saying there about, and, and to me, that is one of the big optimistic things that comes out of this conversation is what you're saying is that we have the capacity to change and to really determine our own self-mastery, for God's sake. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And that's why I think why I use that phrase self-mastery rather than resiliency or mental toughness. You know, the, the, all these concepts are intertwined. They really are. Mm. Um, but to me, self-mastery is beyond emotional regulation. It's beyond resiliency. It's, it's beyond mental toughness. It's actually understanding our biology and our nature and, and, and mastering mm -hmm. it in the true sense. Our nature. That's so right. that's where we'll pick up on. There yes. we go. I can't wait. Chris, please tell the audience where they can find your book and where they can connect with you. However, of course, I always say I will put all these in the notes, but I would love to hear you speak about it. 
So probably the the best way is just go to my website, the, the uncertaintyscientist.com, um, and you can find out all, all about, you know, kind of blogs and everything else. Uh, there's actually one thing on there that your audience might like. Um, okay. We've talked a lot about uncertainty. And so one of the key skills is, is how much uncertainty can you tolerate? How much mm. can you cope with? Very interesting. So I've just put together a really quick free quiz um, that's 10 multiple choice questions. And it just digs down into how well do you cope with uncertainty at the moment? There's no, there's no right or wrong. It's, it's a starting point because yeah. the optimistic bit that we've just talked about is there's always room for growth. Um, so that's available on the site too. Um, links to my books are on there. Uh, so decoding changes out now. The, the second book, which has a working title of "Pause, Pause, Move," uh, should be that. out later. Should be out later in the year. Um, otherwise, I'm I'm on LinkedIn. That's the that's my that's my social media platform of choice, and people can find me there and that's link up with me. So uh, repeat the website one more time. Uh, Theuncertaintyscientist.com. Perfect. You know, that's, that's perfect. You know, I, um, sometimes I feel like when I get around scientists, scientific thinkers, you know, I, I mean, I stereotype like everybody else. I'm going to go, okay, you know, can, can you carry on a conversation? You know, wow. You're not only smart, Chris Marshall, you, you have this really this, this wonderful spirit about you and the, the combination of your, of your intellect and your, I, I guess your humanity or your personality, they, they come together so well, and I, I just thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and so grateful that you came on to grow yourself. Well, that's very, very kind of you to say. Um, what you've identified is a state of joy. That's what I say. Uh, so, yes, yeah. oh, that's, that's interesting, yeah. So listen, until the next time, I'll look forward to, to, uh, to our next conversation, Chris. Me too. No, thank you so much for having me on. No, the pleasure's mine. Thank you.